0: The youth, love them or loathe them, they're here to stay. When it comes to Gen Z, obviously, there's a lot to like. They've elevated TikTok to a high cultural art form. They're very funny about their depression. But would it kill them to do some work? I mean, if you think combating climate change is hard, try being the line manager of a Gen Z. I am, of course, joking, sort of, because, sort of, we owe the younger generations a lot when it comes to putting climate change on the agenda. Um, Greta Thunberg, of course, is a Gen Z, and I have prepared exactly one Greta Thunberg joke. It is objectively quite weak, but I will share it anyway because it's topical content, and it goes as follows. What do Greta Thunberg and South Africa have in common? Answer, very high rates of school absenteeism. <laughs> I admit, perhaps not funny ha-ha, but does it perhaps illuminate an essential truth? I would argue, perhaps it does. Here to discuss the expectations of youth for our future, we have activists Otsile Nkademang and Raisa noor Mohammed led in conversation by Daily Maverick's rising star, Onke Ntuka. Please give them a warm welcome.
1: Hello everybody, and uh, thank you so much for being here today. But uh, I think more importantly, thank you so much for caring enough about the environment to be here. Um, I've got with me two young people that care very deeply enough about the environment to have taken various action steps. Um, whether it's protesting, being a part of movements, um, starting movements, and holding our very stubborn leaders to, to account. <laughs> um, I'm going to start on my right here with youth activist um, Utzilian Ghandimeng, who is lead organiser for Fridays for Future South Africa, co-founder of the Sundial Movement, a network of high schoolers that want to take action on climate as well as Executive Director of So We Vote and High Schooler. Utzile, you're only in matric, and you have such a long CV already. Um, tell us about the, climate, the youth climate justice movement in South Africa, where its roots start off and how it's grown over the years to specifically fit the South African context.
2: Um, so, first of all, allow me to begin by thanking Daily Maverick for the opportunity to be seen, to be heard and to be felt. So when we talk about the climate justice space in South Africa, what's important to note is that it's rooted in justice. So that is to say that the movement as it started, fundamentally was about protecting and making safe environments for people in rural communities, in semi-urban communities, mining affected communities. So we'd seen early on that people would be protesting for things such as clean, safe drinking water in mining communities to try and combat the pollution that's been happening as a result of mines that were in those areas. But what was happening as the progression of the movements grew is that there was a lack of linking the environmental challenges they faced with the crisis of climate change. And we have now seen a progression in that we're now starting to identify that the challenges we face in many of these communities are connected to climate change. And we're starting to see that this space, which is dominated by a lot of older adults, um, many of them pensioners, because they have a lot of time on their hands, We're starting now to see a lot of young people like Raisa, um, like myself, uh, like Gabriel Klassen, who's in the audience, and a few other brilliant activists uh, step up and essentially take over the dialogue around climate to say, okay, we've talked about the environment, now let's talk about how climate relates to the future that we want.
1: Absolutely. And I think at the center of this movement is is climate uh, justice and in addressing that. Uh, we've got. I've also got with me on this panel Raisa Noor-Muhammad, who is an intersectional activist, an artist, and a revolutionary. Um, Raisa, please tell us a little bit more about um, climate injustice in South Africa, but also people on the ground's understanding of, of this phenomenon and, and how conversations around this are landing with people on the ground who are most vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis?
3: So I think the first thing that I want to speak about is just intersectionality, because when we look at things such as the climate crisis, why I call myself an intersectional activist instead of a climate activist is because the climate crisis has its roots in colonialism and capitalism, in the exploitation of the Global South. And those roots are shared with things such as racism, inequalities, poverty, gender-based violence, all these issues link back and link together, and so when looking for solutions, when you want to address these problems, you have to look at it in an intersectional way and with that the intersection with look, we have to keep intersectionality in mind you know, well in every context, but especially a South African context, because climate is It's a big problem, but for so many people, because of the historical injustices and inequalities um, on the ground, people don't really see it as an immediate problem because their immediate problems are like, what am I going to eat today? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And so looking at climate and talking to South Africans, and if we want to talk to South Africans about that, we have to speak to those things, speak to the intersectionalities and the interconnections, we have to look at those things. But also, um, I think we need to be more open to the idea of mutual learning when speaking to people, speaking to South Africans, because I think a lot of us know that the climate space and... um, these spaces as a whole use, have very inaccessible terminology, very inaccessible things. Academia is very inaccessible. And the thing with academia and with articles and research is that it's researchers doing their writings with research gotten from people who are on the ground. And so we need to be open to that mutual learning and understanding because people know what climate change is. They just maybe don't use the fancy words that other people use.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of intersectionality, give us some examples um, of, you know, on the ground, how you've seen um, some of the most pressing intersectional um, issues playing out under the umbrella of, of climate, um, whether it's climate injustice or, or the climate crisis and its effects.
3: So when taking intersectional approaches, like I said, it's about looking at all these different things and looking at how they connect. And in a climate um, space, when we look at climate disasters that are happening, that will happen, um, if we want to find solutions, we have to look at where do these problems come from. If we look at settlements that are prone to flooding, we have to look at why are they there in the first place? Like I know, with lots of areas in the Cape Flats that are very prone to flooding, it's because of apartheid they were, and the spatial segregation that they were put there. And then, like, so there's that. Then there's the fact that the um, structures are not like resilient and all of that. That's another thing. Where does that come from again? Inequalities and all of that. And then, how does climate change impact that? And that's just one example of how um, like climate and on the ground problems can be looked at. I think, for me, the biggest thing is always to ask why. Where does it come from? Why is it like this? What made it like this? What could it be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Raisa. Um, Anutila, I think I'm gonna start uh, with you and getting an answer from this question. In terms of, I mean, has brought about a lot of uh, the examples in which we see climate injustice play out. Um, And I think when we hear from the youth, um, it's, I think a lot of adults think that you guys are just blaming them. Um, And I mean, as you should, Um, they are partly responsible. Um, They should be held accountable and you guys do a very good job at that. But I think a lot of the conversation um, isn't, or from their perspective, isn't focused on solutions that you guys are just simply saying, you've left us with a bad planet, and it's your fault. Um, so tell us a little bit about the solutions that the youth are championing um, to, to the table to, to sort of address this, um, this climate crisis issue.
2: Okay. Um, let me first address the first layer. When young people say to adults that, you know, climate change is your fault, we are being very honest in the fact that What has actually been done to try combat climate change? If we're being honest. Have we seen enough effort on the part of people who have the power socially, politically, and physical investment capital? Have we seen all these people make the shift that is needed to make climate change essentially history? We haven't. So then young people need to come up to the table and say, well, if there aren't any vision documents that lay out what a climate-resilient future must look like, well, then we need to create a document that lays out that vision.
1: And what does... Sorry, what does that document look like? What does it say?
2: The South African Youth Climate Action Plan.
1: Tell us a little bit about it. it. I don't think these people are familiar with it.
2: Uh, So the... SAYCAP, as it's called, was formulated by multiple stakeholders brought together by Youth at SIA, the South African Institute of International Affairs. And what this document lays out is firstly the principles. So, what does the climate adaptation response look like? What is it supposed to look like? it looks like us actually underscoring key areas in specific communities, ensuring that frontline communities are at the front of this response. The capital, when it's invested, the capital is invested in areas that are gonna ensure that those people are safe and are taken care of. It also looks like what principles for investment should we uh, be underscoring? I have the document on my iPad, but I don't want to look down and uh, read <laughs> no, it No, please already. do. But uh, I don't want to take too much time. <laughs> but, when, but, but the important thing to note with documents like this, I list it as an example. Another example is the cancel call task force put together by the African Climate Alliance. This, this is another example of how young people are seeing with the last IRP, the DMRE wanting to bring coal generated electricity onto the grid. Young people saying, one, um, that's dumb. Two, tell them. Two, uh, why would you do that? Renewables are faster, cheaper, and better. And right now in South Africa, where we are is that we need to bring on new energy as a matter of urgency. Because this is not just a climate discussion for those of you who just think it's a climate discussion. The benefits economically for bringing faster, cheaper, cleaner, renewable energy onto the grid far supersede the climate benefits. It helps us get the economy going again. It helps us fix the institutional problems with our uh, state, because when you have a functional energy system, I'm I'm pretty much preaching to the converted here, but when you have a functioning energy system, you're then able to have an economy that is able to produce jobs, you're then able to, as citizens, get together and say, how are we gonna fix the fractured politics in our country? Because our panel is named The Expectations of Youth. Let me just jump on that layer and then you can uh, tell me I'm eating into time. The expectations of young people are that we need to get our act together, and that we need to be at the, at the forefront of this change that is going to be needed in the country. So that's to say that because we are lacking a type of leadership, socially, politically, and economically, that has heavy emphasis on delivery for the people, that has heavy emphasis on making a functional state possible, that has heavy emphasis on addressing what is the biggest threat to humanity right now, apart from Vladimir Putin, (laughs) we must... must, (laughs) We must now be part of shifting the dialogue in this country. So the trope you'll hear is that, ah, but young people don't have the patience for that, or ah, young people are just Mm. angry, or ah, young people are just, they, they, they don't vote and they're too busy at parties and they're on their TikTok and their Instagram. That's nonsense, and I will tell you why. That is nonsense because when you're talking about a reality in South Africa where the future, the future is non-existent for us at this point, where we're not fighting over the rainbow nation, but we're fighting over the ashes of that rainbow nation.
3: You must then...
2: (laughs) You must then expect young people to get up and say, well, we appreciate your contribution, but I think it's time you step aside and actually get on with the business of building a nation. Does that answer the
1: question? Absolutely. And you've answered a few other questions, so thank you. Um, Raisa, I think has um, done a very good job of describing what needs to be done, um, but at a policy level. And I think I want you to speak a little bit about how everyone here in this room what we need to unlearn about the way that we live in order to ensure that some of the suggestions that Utsila has put forward are able to to, to play out, but also at a systematic level, what needs to change.
3: Okay, so um, let me start off by telling you a little bit about myself and my activism. So I am not a policy person. I'm not. I yeah. I can't do the science policies. Oh, those documents just go <laughs> over me. And when I was 17, I wanted to do something because like learning about the climate crisis and like put, joining those dots myself about how it connects to colonialism and the impacts it's going to have, the inequalities. I was I was angry and I was like, why is everyone else angry? And then I wanted, well, because. I didn't know how to do activism like other people did activism, but what I knew how to do is art. I wanted to use art, and so I started um, trying to organise public performance art protest pieces to raise awareness about the climate crisis. And at that point, I was angry with everyone else. I was angry with like the average person walking around because I was like, why aren't you caring? Why are you not angry? And then I think... Oh, that was when I was 17. That was when I was in grade 11. I'm in my third year of university now. And I think as I've done more activism, I think I've gotten less angry with everyone else and angry at the system and the people, that little little pouch of people in power.
1: For sure, because we met about two years ago at COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. And when I met you, you were so angry at the fact that ESCOM was at COP26 trying to negotiate for climate financing for a just energy transition. And you were saying, everyone must just go home and let's just burn the whole of this conference. I don't and, think I said that. <laughs> I mean, that was the energy that you're bringing. So I'm very <laughs> I'm very glad that you have you have come to, to be calmer. Um, <laughs> and better convey oh, you you know, ways in which like we that. should <laughs> <laughs> better convey ways in which we should care. And and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I do continue with um, telling us a little bit more about the urgency of this issue and why people should
3: care? So I think, um, I don't know, I think empathy is a big thing for me. And um, I guess I do get angry and I do get angry at people sometimes because we all exist in a system and the system has layers of people who benefit and people who don't benefit and layers of privilege and layers of marginalization. And so um There's a layer of... When I do my activism and when I do, I look at everyday people because I feel like that's a space that I can be in. And I think, yeah, empathy is a big thing and understanding that it's not really us at fault. We live in a system, we're trying our best to survive in the system, but also with that, not taking away accountability because... um, yeah, even as act, even as activists, I very much believe that it's a privilege to be an activist. It's a privilege to be, have the choice to be an activist because um, it means that that's not your only option, that fighting isn't your only option. I can go to a protest and then I can go home to my bed. Not everyone has that option. So with looking at what people can do, I think learning from each other, trying to understand each other, but also holding each other accountable and just trying to be aware, trying to be nicer to each other is a big thing because if we want to change things, we can't do that if we're all divided. And the thing with South Africa is it was, um, with apartheid, it was planned. Like, it was this idea of us being so divided was, like, that was their strategy because how would a minority be able to control so many people if the people were united? And so I think if we do want to make change, we have to, like, as people, be a lot nicer to each other and kinder, but also not back down and not like, not apologise for anyone who does not deserve it, you know?
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Raisa. I'm going to bring in... Um some questions from our audience online. We've got a question from Francis Craigie, who asks, would either of these driven young people consider working for government and driving solutions from within the government structures? Activism is hugely important, but <laughs> we also need these individuals in our government. Uh, Utzile, I'll start
2: with you. Why do you always start with me with such questions? <laughs> <purpose? laughs> um. Look, when someone who's an activist and speaks out a lot, says things that people resonate with, says certain truths that people know about the system, you often turn to them and say, well, why aren't you president? The truth, the truth is that as activists, we are there to keep the checks and balances when the people in power actually fail to maintain the checks and balances with our system. So, you know, to do that, to some degree, we need to operate outside the system. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't be part of finding leaders that we can get into office. I mean, I think many of the activists and policymakers and people in this room can identify at least five people who could do a better job of running the country right now. So, without actually answering the question, um, uh, I'm honest, come on. Uh, would, would I want to see Raisa in office? Sure. <laughs> would <laughs> I want to see, definitely. Would I want to see other activists know in office? Yes, because I think that at the point at which the political class which governs our country does not inspire that much confidence in the next elections coming in 2024, I think at that point we're at a very dangerous place because give me two minutes to make this point. Of course. I'm a debater, so listen. <laughs> for us to achieve any meaningful change from a government policy side and for us to be as a country that inspires any type of investment and confidence from foreign investors, and to be a country that does not make our skilled labor want to move to Australia, New Zealand, England, to be a country where my teachers don't say, you know, if you want a better life, go overseas. For us to do all of that, we need to have leaders that give us a sense of confidence for the future. So that is to say that we... So that is to say, that we must, as a country, when identifying leaders, not identify them because they talk very well, not identify them because uh, there's a clout around them, but identify them because the experience that they have, one, shows us that they know what they're doing, two, illustrates to us that they understand the actual value of the social contract we have with the government. The social contract theory says that because we all opt into electing the government, we believe in them and we send them as our representatives to take decisions on our behalf. If they don't understand that social contract, or if their experience does not dictate to us, or does not tell us that they understand that concept, then we can't choose these leaders. Because what happens when we do that? We have the situation that we're seeing today, and it's not exclusive to the ruling party. It it, it exists in the entire political class. That's why you don't see massive voter turnouts for many of the opposition parties. That's why you see lower voter participation. And so, as part of So We Vote, the organization I'm executive director of, um, we're trying to inspire Generation Z to say, the change that needs to happen in this country can only happen when we as young people show ourselves to be a group that is one, informed about the situation in the country, two, willing to take action on it, and three, willing to vote. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter ideologically where the leaders stand. For as long as Generation Z is a massive voter base or a massive voter block, it becomes very hard for them to ignore what we're saying. And when Ray and I are outside the union buildings calling for tougher government policy on climate change, it makes it easier for us to actually hand over that memorandum and know it will be heard and it will be addressed. Absolutely. Um
1: Um, You've spoken about, you know, that there is opportunity for collaboration between the government and the youth. Um, Ray, you are part of multiple all-youth environmental organisations. Has the youth been invited to, you know, have a seat at the table when, um, you know, government is speaking of environmental policies and regulations, and if that has happened, has there been any sense of tokenism, or has it actually been effective having your voice heard within those spaces?
3: I think, um, honestly, I'm not the best person to answer that because, like I said, I don't engage in policies and I don't want to. It's boring. (laughs) When, like, this person asked if, Uh, about youth being in government and stuff I don't want to be in government I don't want to be president, I want to be young I want to be able to go to my parties and watch my TikToks (laughs) and I want to be able to do that in a system that works and that I don't have to be scared in. and we don't have that and so that's why I'm in this space I don't want to be in politics I don't want to have to do that, that's not what I love I love art and I love connecting with people and so uh, yes, of course there are. There's so many youth that um, are taking a stand and are um, getting and speaking to government. I personally, um, even if I wanted to, I think I'd be terrible at it because <laughs> I am very much... I could never work with the government because when you work... I don't know, for me, when you work with them, you start to get to involve, then you start, it, it becomes more difficult to see what they're doing, and you start justifying it a little bit, and I am very much on the side of the proletariat, um, and I, pers- like, if I want to be on the ground with people, if I want to be calling for st- Um, system change. If I want to uproot the system and replace it with a grassroots one, then I want to do it from the grassroots level. Mm. I don't want to be up there with them, like working (laughs) And I want to be 20. I'm turning 21 next week. (laughs) I want to be young, you know? Yeah, absolutely.
1: To be young and grow up with a healthy and habitable environment, right? Yeah,
3: and until we get that, then we have to fight for it. I don't want to fight for it, Absolutely. but what choice do I have?
1: Are you hearing that, everyone? I think we've got a bit of a more mature audience here, and I think it's very important that they hear what you have to say, both of you. you. Um, We've also got a question here from Adrian Joseph who asks, are there any local organizations that offer young people an opportunity to take part in climate change activism? Okay, maybe I can (laughs) get you to speak about two each because we are running a little bit out of time.
3: Me. Well, I'm not going to start with
1: you this time. I'll go with Ray.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um there are a lot there's African Climate Alliance which is great. Um, if you are in a MUN debating space and a debating space I think Youth at Sire is a very good option and yeah it offers lots of opportunities for you to get involved in policy and all of that. But then yeah organizations like African Climate Alliance are also really great for youth who don't necessarily want to engage in policy but just want to talk about climate change and all the issues surrounding climate change from a youth perspective and by youth, for youth, in a space that is safe for us. And yeah, there's loads of local organizations and grassroots movements. Do you, do you have anything to talk about?
2: Um, so, simple, it was students, right? Yeah. And the question. So, I go No, co- not necessarily. Uh?
1: Just any local organizations any loc- for young people.
2: Oh, um, okay, so if you're a high school student, like I am, and I saw some high schoolers wearing uniforms somewhere. There, there they are. Hey. Those, are, those, are, those are my people. Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I co-founded something called the Sundial Movement, which is a climate network for high schools. So if high schoolers want to engage with other high schoolers on the climate process and the climate crisis... Sundial serves as a network for us as peers to talk about it at a level that we can understand and for us to collectively take action. So, the Sundial Movement, find us on Instagram. We started it uh, last year with a friend of mine, Petra. Unfortunately, Petra couldn't be here. Uh, I'd love for her to be here because then Petra could talk to all of you about it as well. Um, so, that's the first one. Second one Fridays for Future. Um, Fridays for Future is the international climate action movement. Uh, there's one in the Western Cape, there's one in KwaZulu-Natal, there's one in Gauteng. Uh, African Climate Alliance will sing their praises, always an amazing group. Uh, Extinction Rebellion, which is where I first started in my climate activism. It's oh, me
3: too. It's,
2: yeah, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's trial by fire, but it's amazing. So those organizations and many, many more. Uh, just go online and you'll probably find them.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that, guys. Um, I hope uh, the viewer has taken down some notes. And I wanna come back to our discussion again about um, climate injustice and some of the work that you're doing in there. Um, You guys speak very passionately about the work that you do and the impact that you have and what needs to be done. But um, I think you'll agree with me in acknowledging that all three of us come from pretty privileged, Background, and we have various platforms to to speak extensively about this, whereas others don't, um, particularly about how they're affected. Tell me about how people who are most vulnerable, communities, for example, in Cape Town that are constantly flooded, their shacks being washed away, um, how do you get them to care about um, the environmental movement as much as you guys do when they are so concerned about bread and butter
3: issues? I think... I don't think I have to get them to care because I'm pretty sure they already do. It's their homes being washed away, it's their the impact. But the thing is, like you said, we are privileged, and we walk around in privileged spaces. We we talk to privileged people. We read our uh, articles and all of that. We well, I study anthropology and environmental and geographical science, and I like. I know. I don't know anything about what's happening on the ground because I'm not, that's not where I'm from. And I think that's why we need to really look at learning from people and connecting with people who are on the ground and in like not approaching them with, you should care about this is what climate change is. You need to care about climate change because this approaching them and asking them for like their stories and what they know, their solutions to the things that are already happening. Because the thing is, with the spaces we occupy and the the people who have voices in media and stuff, they don't tell us that people have their own solutions and people know what climate change is. They very often, and with with NGOs, with corporations, they approach um, communities with the assumption that they don't know how to fix things and they go there and they look for this and they look, for, oh, okay, they need these solutions and they implement the solutions. And I think especially if we want to move forward um, and uproot the system replacing it with the grassroots one, you have to do it with the, at a grassroots level and give the people who know what to do um, the resources to do it because who knows better than they do? Absolutely. Um...
1: Odzilia, we've got, I think, about two minutes. So I'm going to ask you to wrap this one up and keep it short. What do you have to say to our audience, um, our government, everyone listening? What do you want them to take away from the youth movement? Um, And please give them a call to action as well.
2: With less than one minute, Yes. let's (laughs) be... Let's be honest, let's be frank. You need to give young people more time to lead and to talk to all of you. You need to trust us when we tell you we know what we're doing. You need to give us a platform more than what we're currently getting because we have to scrape for every second and every moment of your attention. You need to also, within your spaces, encourage young people around you to try and lead as well. Because at the moment, Ray and I are part of a very, very small group of privileged young people that can do this. We're talking about frontline communities. How many people in this audience are from those communities? How many young people from those audiences get to talk? So we also need to talk about that. How How does the privilege that exists that we have and that many people in the audience have, how do we translate that to the communities that need it the most and the young people there? So my call to action... For all of you is this, let young people lead. Don't give us the power because we're going to take it anyway, but, but what you must do instead is recognize that the history of our species as humans has always met a point of reckoning and at that point of reckoning it has always been the young people who have led us forward. So at this moment of crisis in South Africa, we must all recognise that change will not come from those who have had power for a very long time, but rather change will come from a new generation of, y- of young people that want to lead because they're willing to take bold decisions, they're willing to take actionable decisions, and and we can be uncompromisingly stubborn on the issues we know to be right, and that's what we need now more than ever.
1: Thank you so much, that was You've um, clearly touched a nerve there because the older gentleman who was taking a nap here has even awoken. So, well done. <laughs> um, but there you have it, everyone. Um, you've heard from our brilliant, um, driven, very passionate, and determined youth. And um, you guys, I don't think there's anything that can stop you now. Just please do keep going and doing the work that you do and fighting for a healthy and habitable environment in future. Thank you so much everyone.